Chapter Five of King and Parliament by George Henry Wakeling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Civil War to the King's Death, sixteen forty two to sixteen forty nine. When war was thus declared, neither party had a powerful army, a definite plan of action, or a sure hold on any large tract of the country but roughly speaking it may be said that the north and west favoured the king while the east and south immeasurably the richer half of england adhered to parliament yet there were local struggles in which divisions appeared inside these limits and along the border-line between east and west in yorkshire staffordshire leicestershire warwickshire berkshire and hampshire there was plentiful division the king could reckon on the strong loyalty which was still felt for his person and for the cause of the church among large numbers of the nobility gentry and peasantry parliament was sure of a few similar adherents and of the whole of the middle classes in the districts which held to them but there was this important difference the royal cause centred round a person the parliamentary cause round a principle little understood and vaguely enunciated further in the parliamentary cause there was this difficulty what was the real aim of the war was charles to be beaten in the field and forced to terms or pursued and punished this is what made the rebel position so awkward there was no clear understanding of the object of the war the vow to live and die in defence of king and parliament did not sound a very thrilling cry when those who uttered it were fighting with one but against the other the king on the other hand had a clear end to pursue the conquest and subjection of parliament for which he needed only a victorious march to london thus the struggle was sure to develop in one direction the king must attack and the rebels must defend the line which divided their respective strongholds every accession of territory for the king would be therefore a step nearer his end but for parliament attention must be concentrated on defence even if they beat him charles was still king and no one knew on what terms parliament would lay down their arms this course of action defence by parliament and attack by charles was made even more necessary by the fact that the former had no reliable permanent force too many of the parliament's adherents were willing to fight a campaign with the clear object of barring the king's progress to london or relieving a besieged garrison but they were sure to flag when the effort was over the londoners as is their miskent custom after a piece of service get them home says the scots commissioner meanwhile the war had definitely commenced with some advantage to the parliamentarians goring who held portsmouth for the king surrendered it early in september and thus put an end for the present to any hope of a strong southern position for the royalists the marquis of hartford had been placed by charles in command of his forces in the southwest but was stoutly resisted he succeeded in getting possession of shepton mallet but was besieged on taking post at sherborne and failed to make any stand in these parts he went therefore into wales sending his lieutenant sir ralph hopton to cornwall 
the central struggle of the year was between the king and the main parliamentary army under essex the latter assembled at northampton and pressed on towards nottingham where charles had but a small force the king determined to march westward and recruit his ranks among his adherents in wales on his way from shrewsbury to chester he gained large reinforcements essex followed and occupied worcester though prince rupert the king's nephew a dashing reckless cavalry officer won a skirmish at powick bridge in an endeavour to save it having at last gathered a host of some strength charles started for london on october twelfth essex followed and came up with him on the slopes of edgehill not far from banbury the royal forces had to leave a strong position on edgehill to make the attack rupert at once charged drove the enemy's cavalry before him and pursued them for five miles leaving the king to fight with infantry only these were practically without leadership for the king possessed courage without military skill the puritan foot soldiers in essex's army behaved splendidly and their conduct was matched by that of the king's red regiment sir edmund verney died with the royal standard in his hands and the earl of lindsay the king's general-in-chief was taken prisoner mortally wounded when evening came the royalist position was still maintained though rupert returned to the field to find that his reckless pursuit had turned a victory into a drawn battle charles had so far the best of the encounter that he was able to go to oxford after taking banbury there had been some conflict in oxford where the loyalty of the university was not shared by the townsmen but now it was to become the king's chief stronghold and headquarters during the rest of the war the way to london was open and the advance began in november the citizens expected an attack when rupert had sacked brentford the whole militia of london marched out to turnham green to oppose the royal army charles not inclined to risk a battle with twenty-five thousand citizens fighting to save their hearths and homes retired to reading and finally to oxford thus throwing away his hopes of success there were now three chief gatherings of royalist forces the king's headquarters at oxford hopton's small force in cornwall and the northern royalists under newcastle fighting for supremacy in yorkshire these three centres must be separately watched during the next campaigns in the centre there were many small encounters chiefly owing to the endeavours of the rebel commanders to stop communication between various royal forces essex took reading and established himself on the east side of oxford where he was attacked by rupert and his cavalry the engagement at chalgrove field june sixteen forty three is chiefly noteworthy owing to the death of hampton the hero of the old dispute about the ship money who was mortally wounded during the skirmish the queen landed on the yorkshire coast with arms and money from holland and the royalist successes in the midlands where they took tamworth lichfield and many other towns enabled her to get safely from york to oxford in the north newcastle had some difficulty in holding his own against lord fairfax and his son thomas yorkshire magnates who were vigorous for parliament he penetrated as far as pontefract after beating lord fairfax at tadcaster as newark was held for the king 
it would have been easy for him now to join charles but he preferred to turn his attention to the reduction of the west riding his advance was checked by the younger fairfax who recovered a part of the county for parliament this was however retrieved by a victory over the two fairfaxes at Edwalton moor june thirtieth sixteen forty three which once more turned the tide in the north hull alone held out for parliament to utilize this success by an attack on the enemy's forces in the eastern counties was newcastle's next project this however was not well carried out and the eastern roundheads under colonel oliver cromwell who now first appears on the scene were able to beat the royalists at gainsborough cromwell came of an old huntingdonshire family and had been in parliament as early as sixteen twenty eight he was already giving proofs of those qualities which were to raise him to the foremost place in england while others hesitated cromwell always acted and knew how to adapt means to ends while so many in parliament and in the fields were far from sure as to their aims and methods this man of clear views and quick action was a power indeed to common sense and tact he added all that was most vigorous in puritanism a firm belief in divine guidance and a keen sense that a great cause was entrusted to him and his lovely company as he called his grim puritan troopers meanwhile in the west of england the king's troops had won a series of brilliant victories hopton assisted by the local gentry among whom the grenvilles were conspicuous made himself master of cornwall he won a clear victory at braddock down in january and was then confronted by lord stamford who came from wales to aid the western roundheads the departure of stamford to the west had set hartford free to join charles at oxford with his welsh recruits and when he had taken cirencester all the severn valley except gloucester was in royalist hands sir william waller was now sent as parliamentary general to the west and by his nimble marches secured bristol monmouth and chepstow and surprised hereford meanwhile charles was writing to hopton in cornwall bidding him push on to oxford hopton had again beaten stamford at stratton and taken in most of devonshire this had to be stopped and waller came from wales for the purpose it was no light task for there were already royalist troops at salisbury ready to join hopton their junction was effected at chard and in two combined attacks on waller at lansdowne and roundway down they were completely successful the result of these successes was the surrender of bristol then and for long after the second city in the kingdom thus in these six months of sixteen forty three there had been an almost uninterrupted series of royalist victories with newcastle supreme in yorkshire and hopton in the west charles had no force to fear this was the moment for striking a final blow on his enemies by concentrating all his forces on london but it was impossible hopton and newcastle reported that their troops utterly refused to leave their homes exposed to attacks from rebel garrisons charles himself had a miserable army for such an attempt and the chance was abandoned when it was decided to attempt the siege of gloucester instead of taking advantage of the dissensions in london there had indeed been during this period a growing desire for peace 
the extreme puritan party had no part in it but the lords in the city of london together with several counties were anxious to send terms to the king the commons had to assent and proposals hardly less stringent than the nineteen propositions were sent to oxford in february of sixteen forty three charles sent counter-proposals demanding restoration of ships forts and revenue protection for the prayer-book and a disclaimer of the right to tax and imprison there was no hope of agreement though the fruitless negotiations dragged on for months the determination of the king to besiege gloucester called forth an enthusiasm on the part of his enemies to relieve it essex's resolute eight days march with eight thousand londoners through a hostile country was one of the boldest strokes of the whole war on his approach charles abandoned the siege intending to cut off the enemy's return to london after an unsuccessful attempt to outmanoeuvre essex the royalist force followed him in the direction of newbury the parliamentarians had taken the kennet valley road to london and to occupy newbury was the only chance of barring their passage essex and his men fought their way on from field to field only to find the open country stoutly held two regiments of london trained bands resisted the shock of rupert's cavalry and behaved to wonder the royalists lost some of their noblest lord falkland sickened by the sights and sounds of civil war courted and found death a whole day's fighting left the royal position still unforced but during the night the king being short of ammunition abandoned his posts and essex reached reading in safety the year's fighting was brought to a close by the successes of hopton who led his western army as far as arundel winchester having been already surprised and dartmouth surrendered to rupert's brother morris in the eastern counties lord manchester had been placed in command by the parliament and his second in command cromwell had grasped the truth that enthusiasm equal to that of the cavalier gentlemen could only be secured by enrolling puritans who would fight with a spirit his new levies soon proved their worth by defeating the royalist cavalry at winsby october sixteen forty three with the commencement of sixteen forty four two important changes must be noticed the scots had been induced to send a force into england on the parliamentary side and charles had made a treaty with the irish leaders by which he had already obtained an increased force and hoped for more the solemn league and covenant entered into by the scots and the parliament in september sixteen forty three was from the scottish point of view an alliance for the establishment of presbyterianism in england but the english looked little further than the assistance they were likely to afford in the war the irish cessation of september sixteen forty three was a twelve months truce with the catholics in ireland which would enable charles to bring over his english troops the wrecks of Strafford's old army, and used them against Parliament. The Solemn League and Covenant was Pym's last triumph. His death in December 1643 removed the great leader who had kept a majority together during the critical days of religious difference in the long Parliament, and who, though no theologian, had placed the Puritan program in the van of the parliamentary position he believed in puritanism as a national force but the westminster assembly where a settlement of religion was now being debated 
was beginning to show a line of division between Presbyterians and Independents, which was, later on, to wreck the cause of Puritanism in England. Difficulties were occurring, too, in the Royalist camp. There were quarrels among the commanders, many of whom, like Prince Rupert and his brother Morris, objected to civilian influence exercised by such men as Hyde and Culpepper. Charles had gathered a counter-parliament in Oxford, his mongrel parliament, as he called it, which also caused trouble, as his conduct in Irish affairs was not popular among the English gentry. But it gave the king's cause a great show of legality, as it included more than half the House of Lords and a third of the Commons. Similar contentions were arising in the eastern counties and among the parliamentary commanders. Essex and Waller were jealous of each other, and Cromwell was anxious to bring forward in the army the independent Puritan elements which he had seen to be of such splendid fighting quality. Thus, with Irish intrigues, military dissensions, and religious bitterness, the intervention of the Scots, who were anxious to convert England to the opinions they held on Presbyterianism, only threw one more question on the table, the divine right of presbyters and elders to rule church and control state. Early in 1644, Hopton's successes received a rude check by his defeat at Cheriton in Hampshire. Newark was also in danger, and there were indications that Newcastle could be hemmed in by the Scots from the north and by Cromwell from the east. The loss of the north would be a crushing blow to Charles, who was unable to concentrate his forces to relieve Newcastle, as he was now met by a combination of Essex and Waller they approached Oxford at the end of May. Rupert was sent with the best of the king's troops to relieve York, into which Newcastle had retired, and Charles remained in the Midlands with the rest of his host to deal with his two foes. Fortunately for the royal cause, Essex and Waller elected to act separately, and the former went south to relieve the few seaports which held out in Devon and Dorset from local assailants. Charles had now to fight Waller and succeeded in checking him at the engagement of Cropperty Bridge. Waller's troops were clamoring to get home, and thus Charles had no difficulty in marching after Essex, who actually retired into Cornwall in the end of July, and allowed himself to be hemmed in by the king. His army surrendered at Lostwithiel, but he himself escaped by sea to Plymouth, September 1644. Meanwhile, this success of the king in the west was more than balanced by the entire loss of the north. Here the Scots had joined the Fairfaxes and the troops of the Eastern Association under Manchester and Cromwell for the siege of York. Rupert had carried all before him till he outmaneuvered the parliamentary generals and reached York. Joining Newcastle's forces, he advanced close to the enemy on the slopes of Marston Moor, on the evening of July 2nd. The rebel forces at once attacked. Cromwell's cuirassiers and Leslie's dragoons broke up Rupert's cavalry, though Goring routed Fairfax on the other wing, and the Scots in the centre were terribly pressed. But Cromwell defeated Goring as he returned from the pursuit, and Leslie succored his countrymen in the centre. Finally the Royalist infantry fell back, and a complete victory for the rebels dealt a final blow to the king's hopes in the north. But in this perplexing war, local struggles were raging everywhere. There was no unanimity even in Scotland. 
the marquis of montrose who was opposed to the idea of presbyterian democracy placed his hopes in charles and with the astounding belief that presbyterianism on an aristocratic basis could be achieved for england and scotland by helping the royalist cause he now raised a highland force and prepared to strike a blow for the king he won some wonderful victories beginning with tippermuir in september sixteen forty four and by the middle of sixteen forty five his successes seemed as if they might have a serious effect on the ultimate event of the war after the great victory of marston moor there is no doubt that vigorous action on the part of parliament might have gone far to stop hostilities and bring the king to terms charles had to get back from the west and if the rebel forces could have concentrated rapidly enough it would have been possible to bar his passage to oxford and pen him in the western peninsula the army of essex was dissolved but waller was sent to hold charles in check and manchester was ordered to go to the west to support him manchester who is described as a sweet meek man by the scotchman bailey had no taste for crushing the king in person while cromwell his lieutenant the darling of the sectaries felt that this was precisely what was wanted his troopers who fined each other for swearing and sang their psalms before throwing themselves on the royalist cavalry would have followed him against any foe spiritual or political the result was that in spite of the necessity and the eagerness of some manchester asked for a definition of the word west and delayed to cooperate with waller this was fatal charles having given his foes time by waiting for levies arrived near newbury on october twenty second sixteen forty four waller had fallen back and been tardily joined by manchester and cromwell the parliamentary cause was not advanced by the action of the committee of both kingdoms a body in whose hands military matters had been placed since the arrival of the scots in england they gave orders from london and instead of placing one man in command and giving him a general's freedom of action they had on this occasion appointed a council of war to manage the campaign the result was shown in the battle that ensued at newbury the royal forces were strongly posted and it was decided to attack them in the rear by a flank movement to make success certain the main body was to divert attention by attacking the royal position in front a party under cromwell and others successfully stormed the rear of the king's position at speen but manchester hesitated to make the attack in front and when he finally did so late in the day he was repulsed darkness put an end to the struggle and charles's forces got safely away toward oxford the prey had escaped both sides had now lost a great opportunity and both had learnt the lesson organized forces and determined leaders must be obtained for the parliament if they were to beat the king the royal forces must leave oxford to itself and crush their foes in detail as they could not yet get to london meanwhile the parliament had begun to organize the new model army a permanent puritan force which was ready early in sixteen forty five the self-denying ordinance excluded all members of lords and commons from command and left military power in the hands of approved soldier the younger fairfax hand in hand with this reform came the execution of archbishop laud june tenth sixteen forty five and the further severance of presbyterians from independence 
the latter wished for toleration and state supremacy over the church the former for the systematic enforcement of presbyterian methods and no state interference the independents believed in themselves while the presbyterians believed in a system of church government there was a weighty third party at whose head was the great lawyer selden which dissented from the extreme views of both independents and presbyterians and meant to uphold state control over both yet the growth of the independent party was on the whole steady the scots were keenly averse to this new form of puritanism and began to hope for something from charles hence the fruitless negotiations which took place at uxbridge in january sixteen forty five the independents smiled and went on with the new model in the spring of sixteen forty five rupert went to wales to recruit and hoped to be joined by charles the two would attack the scots who had been obliged to send large forces to the north where montrose was wasting argyleshire cromwell with a handful of cavalry made a dashing raid round oxford and carried off the horses without which no guns could leave the royal headquarters by this time the new model was ready and though rupert had joined the king fairfax was ordered to relieve taunton this was a mistake for it left charles free to fight the scots while he was endeavouring to find them fairfax abandoning the relief of taunton came back to besiege oxford if the place had been stronger the king might have beaten the scots and joined montrose who was carrying all before him but charles after sacking leicester may thirty first feared to go too far from his southern stronghold and fairfax was therefore able to bring him to battle charles was at daventry and the royalists neither knew nor cared anything about the new model army the despised parliamentary forces surprised the king near the village of naseby on june fourteenth again rupert dashed off the field after making a brilliant charge cromwell and his troopers were thus enabled to turn the scale in favour of the parliamentary infantry and the king's army was completely beaten and its infantry cut to pieces charles's cause was now almost hopeless enthusiasm and organization were on the side of his enemies their quarrels were set aside and the real victory rested with the independents the royal intrigues with the irish and with foreign powers had been discovered by the capture of the king's cabinet at naseby and proofs of his machinations were on view in london to convince doubters his commanders were quarrelling or like goring drinking away his cause in the west the real weakness of the king's position was that he was safe nowhere his foes now realized that he must be closely followed and prevented from raising another army he was in wales in july but the scots were making it untenable and the king's hope was in a junction with his western forces in the west however the new model after its victory in the midlands was engaged in a brilliant campaign which made parliament masters of the devonian peninsula after fairfax's victories at langport and bridgewater in july the only ray of hope was in the north montrose had beaten the forces sent against him in two brilliant actions at Aldern and alford but his highlanders like the troops of essex and waller after a success got them home to stow their booty still if montrose could not come south charles might join him in the north with this object the king assembled the yorkshire gentry at doncaster only to find himself hotly pursued by colonel points and the scottish cavalry under david leslie 
though the latter was soon recalled to scotland to face montrose who had just defeated bailey at kilsyth any hope of getting to scotland was spoiled by the wariness of points and the king was again obliged to make for oxford his marches during these months are well described by clarendon as perpetual motion leaving oxford on august thirtieth he managed to relieve hereford from the scots but his recruiting ground was now worked out and no forces were available for the relief of bristol which fairfax was now besieging again the fugitive king wandered aimlessly northwards only to see his troops defeated by his pursuer near chester on Roughton heath september twenty fourth from newark he might still reach montrose but that brilliant adventurer had just been beaten and ruined after a year of unprecedented victory by david leslie at the surprise of philippow bristol was stormed and surrendered on september tenth by rupert who had no liking for a failing cause when charles beaten and low-spirited once more reached oxford in october his position in the midlands had become untenable owing to the activity of the parliamentary generals the next few months were occupied by cromwell and fairfax in the complete subjugation of the west hopton made a gallant stand but all was lost early in sixteen forty six chester had surrendered newark was invested by the scots and south wales was all but lost such hope as the king now had rested on a treaty with the scots army this was possible owing to the disgust of the northerners at the failure of their hopes for the conversion of england to presbyterianism and at the complete success of the independence in the army of cromwell and fairfax french diplomacy was used to create a superficial agreement between charles and the scots consisting of a verbal treaty in which neither party said what they meant the result was that the king left oxford in may of sixteen forty six to take refuge in the scots camp outside newark with the capitulation of oxford on june twenty fourth the civil war was ended the scottish forces retired to newcastle with the king practically a prisoner in their camp his position was the result of a resolve to try and get the help of their swords without giving them what they required in return namely a definite pledge for presbyterianism in england they never intended to take less and he never meant to grant as much in fact the situation had now changed intrigue took the place of war there were three clear parties first the scots anxious to make england presbyterian secondly the army of the parliament flushed with victory and hating the scots as much as the scots hated bishops lastly the english parliament itself where there were many moderate men in favour of a compromise and as yet a decided majority for presbyterianism charles's object for the next few years was to play with these three forces in order to secure his own ends while each party was willing to treat with him also for its own ends this explains the constant attempts of the various parties to secure the king's person and so gain his ear the scots who held the prize now combined with parliament to offer the so-called newcastle propositions the parliament was perfectly aware of the scots intrigue in spite of their audacious denial of all knowledge of the king's intended journey to their camp yet fearing the independence the majority at westminster concurred in pressing the treaty by which charles was asked to take the covenant 
abolish episcopacy and resign the control of militia to parliament for twenty years the king's attitude was disappointing instead of refusing manfully he spoke of discussion the queen wiser in her generation wished him to yield with the hope of getting back his power gradually finally he suggested a compromise which was refused and the scots decided to leave england their arrears were paid by parliament and the king was handed over to english commissioners who took him to holmby house in northamptonshire february sixteen forty seven he at once renewed his negotiations with the english presbyterians who were more moderate than the scots their main wish was to get rid of the army and they were now proposing to send some regiments to ireland and disband others this led to a most important movement for the army had long been growing into a political force and at once organized itself to resist extinction at the hands of a presbyterian parliament each troop elected a representative and these chose two agitators for each regiment the army was disgusted at the discovery that parliament was not only scheming to dissolve it but also concocting an arrangement with the king in the presbyterian interest and so cromwell and the officers who had not yet sided with the army against parliament contrived to arrange the seizure of charles by cornet joyce he was taken to newmarket and there kept up the feud between his enemies by complaining to parliament of his unlawful seizure by the army the two forces military and civil were now at open strife the commons were known to be relying on the london trained bands and the army promptly issued its famous manifesto in which the leaders declared they would march on the city to satisfy their just demands the trained bands were called out but the army shrank from bloodshed and the manifesto on being handed to parliament was found to contain a demand for a dissolution and short parliaments in which we can trace the idea of sovereignty of the people another peremptory request was for the expulsion of eleven presbyterian members who had been instrumental in the late negotiations with the king these prudently fled but the commons resolved that the army should not come within twenty-five miles of london the flight of the leading presbyterians made parliament more inclined to come to terms with the army but the city was still in favour of accepting a compromise with charles and many of the independent members took refuge from mob violence in the army this gave fairfax an excuse for marching on london which he did in august sixteen forty seven to restore these members meanwhile cromwell and fairfax had themselves been endeavouring to come to some terms with the king but the extreme democratic party in the army led by the agitators was for a more complete change including manhood suffrage and avowed popular sovereignty thus the king had a threefold choice to side with the moderate presbyterians to accept the moderate army proposals or to succumb to the thorough-paced democracy of the levelling party at first he refused to accept any overtures from the independents but subsequently he endeavoured to keep his foes divided by telling parliament that he preferred the army proposals and wished to consider them the army was now thoroughly divided and the influence of the extreme party was sufficient to raise a storm against cromwell who was spoken of as judas a mutiny occurred and was suppressed by the leaders 
but it was becoming clear that the agitators must be reckoned with. They were already speaking of justice on the man of blood, and Charles began to fear for his safety. In November 1647 he escaped to the Isle of Wight, still putting his main trust in increasing the conflicts of his enemies. His rejection, however, of the four bills in which he was asked to give security for Parliament's independence and control over the militia at last induced the army and Parliament to forget their differences and combine against him. The vote for discontinuing further addresses to the king was passed in January 1648. It was now clear to Cromwell that no hope remained of coming to terms with Charles, but how to arrange any future agreement between army fanatics, moderate republicans, and independents was not so clear. For Charles one card remained to play. The Scots had not ceased to ply him with promises, and he now signed an agreement known as the Engagement, by which the Scots pledged themselves to restore him to power in return for concessions to Presbyterianism in England. This last proof of duplicity led to the second civil war, which broke out at once. The English rising came first. The scattered survivors of the Royalist party took arms on all sides, but they were badly organized, and there was little difficulty in repressing them. Cromwell had a campaign in South Wales, and Fairfax crushed risings at Maidstone and Colchester. The Prince of Wales, to whom a portion of the fleet had turned, threatened the capital, but was compelled to retire for lack of provisions. Somewhat strangely, no enthusiasm was called forth in London, and the city shut its gates on the royalist forces. The Scots gave more trouble. Their kingdom was divided into two parties. The extreme Presbyterians under Argyle would have no hand in the rising, unless Charles took the covenant and forswore bishops and prayer-book. The more moderate party, with whom the majority of the nobility sided, were opposed to all extreme clericalism, and were willing to fight on Charles's moderate promises. Unfortunately, their leader was the incapable Hamilton. Though only partially supported, he advanced into England in July. There he was soon to meet Cromwell, who had done his work in Wales and was ready to oppose the northern host. The Scottish forces were surprised before they could join the English royalists in North Wales. Their English contingent was caught and conquered at Preston, August 17, 1648. The Scottish army decamped toward the south, and Cromwell followed in pursuit through Wigan, taking 10,000 prisoners, some of whom were sent home, while others were sent as slaves to the West Indies. Hamilton capitulated, and the campaign was over. When the war was finished, there was a marked change. The party of moderate Presbyterianism in London had again the upper hand, and was able to send terms to Charles at Newport. But the king only replied by offering a very trifling part of what was asked. In the army, however, there was a much stronger feeling that negotiation must cease and justice begin. He who had caused the second war must be punished now that it was safely ended. Cromwell had written from Preston about destroying those who trouble the land. After sending an ultimatum to the king at Newport on November 16th, the army council asked for Parliament's concurrence in their remonstrance, in which the establishment of democracy and the trial of the king were urged. 
this was neglected by the parliament and the army was exasperated into declaring that parliament had broken its trust and it was the duty of the army to put a stop to such proceedings pride's purge the ejection of the obstinate members by colonel pride on december sixth left parliament a tool in the hands of the army charles had already been seized by command of the officers and conveyed to hurst castle on the hampshire coast there was now no further question about bringing him to london for trial the commons passed an ordinance for trying the king on january first sixteen forty nine and when the lords refused it the lower house further declared that as the people are the real source of power the house of commons might make laws alone a high court of justice was then nominated but less than half of those originally nominated to it sat to try the king in westminster hall legally there was no justification for such a course as no process can issue against the sovereign the justification must be sought in moral and political grounds for us it is enough to note that the prisoner was charged with carrying on a wicked and tyrannical power according to his own will instead of that limited authority with which he was entrusted by the nation and laws thus was raised in its greatest and most terrible form the question of sovereignty which had already caused so much bloodshed but thus it found no satisfactory answer the king's reply completely convincing according to the old constitution and the letter of the law was a restatement of his superiority to law and a criticism of the illegality and partisan character of the court he was condemned and beheaded at whitehall on january thirtieth sixteen forty nine meeting his fate with a dignity and resignation which moved the hearts even of his enemies in the compassion which was felt for his bloody end it was forgotten by most men that he had brought his fate on himself by his persistent machinations against his captors and his reckless stirring up of the second civil war if he had kept quiet in his captivity he would never have come to the scaffold End of chapter five